the reality is you're still going to have the ups and downs and go through the ups and downs, whether you're a 44-year-old coach or whether you're a 19-year-old player. And you have to be able to navigate those. And it's not easy. You know, everybody has their own experiences and everybody's their own person. And we want to very much normalize the idea that working on yourself, working on your own mental state, your own mindset is just as important as getting in the weight room, working on your strength. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former head coach and current president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics, Brad Stevens. Coach Stevens is here today to discuss great practices, making adjustments, guarding the Spanish pick and roll, and we talk Ted Lasso, mental health, and dribble drive motion during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Thank you to the coaches and staff from around the world who have joined SG Plus this summer. For less than $30 a month, coaches can get complete access to thousands of hours of topical basketball content, as well as the ability to learn and connect with others in our Coaches Corner community. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Brad Stevens. Coach, thanks so much for making the time for us and coming on the podcast. We're really excited to talk to you. No, it's great to be here. I appreciate, you know, I've had a chance to listen to a few of the podcasts and know a couple of my friends have been on it. So I look forward to talking with you guys. Thank you, Coach. coach. We want to dive in with this new role that you're in with the Celtics and what you're taking from all the things you've learned over the course of your coaching career about how to use people's strengths on a team and how you're looking at using that skill in your new role? That's a a good question and a lot of avenues that we could go off of that, right? It's interesting, you know, these eight years as the coach of the Celtics have obviously been great preparation for this because I got to watch Danny do it every day, you know, in all of our different conversations and all of our different time together. Had an idea of what the job would entail, but, you know, I quickly learned, as you probably do in any job like this, that there was way more that you didn't know when you first take it over. The time spent as, you know, a person running a program at Butler where you're responsible for literally everything. I had a chance to go back to Butler this week and, you know, even Butler's changed from the standpoint, we only had three assistant coaches, a director of ops, and maybe, you know, a couple of managers a year. So it wasn't like these big staffs So you're responsible for everything. I guess that's the benefit of that. I think that when I came into this role, my goal was obviously we were going to have the coaching change. And the biggest part of that from an anxiety standpoint for me was my coaching staff and what they would do or have the opportunity to do next. Now, we have several of our staff from last year are still here with us and most everyone else is at another place and going to do really well. And so I'm thankful and grateful for that. The 
part then that was next, right? When you have a chance, you get the coaching staff hired and you know you have to focus on your roster with the draft and free agency coming up was I'm just gonna evaluate who does what and what we need to do moving forward. And and I think that it's a great testament to the people that are in the building. You know, I have such a greater understanding now of all that everyone was doing. You know, even even as a coach right down the hallway, I didn't understand in every nuance and aspect all the modeling that our stats people were doing. I didn't understand in everything all of the work that our scouts and draft prep and all of the time spent by the Mike Zarens of the world and by Austin and, and that staff on all of the little things that go into making this run smoothly. Danny always walked around here like nothing was bothering him. And I quickly learned that he's either superhuman or he just has a great poker face, right? <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot to do, but I have a great deal of respect and appreciation for the people that are here. We also have hired people over the last few years that I think are going to help us, you know, continue to grow this out and build this out. You know, I lean on Allison Feaster a lot in her role as really our leader of culture and, you know, the vice president of organizational growth and, and development. I think that those are enormous things for our group as we continue to move forward and as we continue to grow because these staffs are bigger and bigger and you just have to make sure everybody's on the same page. Coach, you mentioned as you prepared for the draft. And so my question is just, has how you viewed a team and building a team changed at all going from obviously a coach to a management position? I'd say that the thing that you know, but you're probably looking at more detailed, obviously, in this job is all of the cap and all of the things from a salary perspective and how to manage that not only in the short term, but the long term. The draft prep and all of those things, I always got caught up after the season as a coach, but obviously didn't dive in like I did even this year when we only had the 45th pick. Yeah, It's different. From this perspective, and I think you're certainly considering different things. I think that, again, a lot of those considerations come from, you know, wherever you are financially as a group. But I do think that I look at it pretty much the same as, you know, I looked at it for the last 21 years. How can we accentuate our best players and try to get the most out of them by surrounding them with the right people? I'd like to also focus now on the communication aspect. How has communication changed? When you went from Butler to being the Celtics head coach to now in management, how at each stop, how you communicated to your players and now to your staff changed? At Butler, it was much easier. And here's why. Because when I got there, you know, we were very much a values-based organization. We knew what we were making decisions based on. We knew the kind of players, teammates, and competitors we were looking for. And we got to verbalize that from the time they walked on campus as a visitor, you know, when they were 15, 16, 17 years old. So when they came to campus, they knew exactly what they were getting into. And we could really take off from there. We also had players that had been in the program for two, three years, sometimes four years, red shirt, fifth year seniors, and they could really help us. You know, you're talking about maybe, again, with a small staff and players, maybe 20 to 25 people total that 
you know, you've got to get all on the same page and you've got to constantly be communicating what's most important. And at that time, when I was starting as the head coach, you know, people were just starting to use Twitter. People were just, you know, I don't even think Instagram was a thing. So like some of the things that you cover daily now or that you talk about daily now, you weren't talking about, you know, 14 years ago or not talking about in depth. Then here, I would say in both coaching, when you have a staff of 10 to 12, you know, including video or people that are on the court doing what we call player enhancement coaches, plus assistant coaches, plus you've got the team, plus you're trying to communicate across all the different constituencies here in the building and in your corporate office as well. That's quite different. It's extremely critical to be on the same page. I think we can constantly improve with that. I think that I can constantly improve with that. And we need to make sure that all of us are on same message all the time. I think we've done a good job of that over the years here. And I give Danny a lot of credit for that because he knows how hard each of those roles are. He knows how hard being a coach is because he was one for four years. And he'll talk about that very openly. And he obviously knows how hard it is to be a player and a really good player. And so I think that that was always helpful. He always stressed that we needed to be on one page with no mixed messages. And it's just something that you always have to do. You mentioned, how are you looking to improve your communication or how do you find ways to improve your communication? Yeah, it's funny. I'm not a meeting person. I started my life in the corporate world at Eli Lilly. And anybody that's been you know, in marketing, I was a marketing associate. So anybody that's been in marketing would tell you that they probably just hate the days where they see their entire day, eight to nine, nine to 10, 10 to 11 is all scheduled in meetings. And back then, you know, if I remember correctly, we were using some form of Outlook or whatever the case may be. And somebody else could get into your meeting schedule and <laughs> schedule it for you. And it was just like, you didn't have any more hours in the day. And by the time the day was over, you could just start doing your work. And so I've never been like a huge meeting person. I like to communicate what's needed and make sure that everybody has time to do their work appropriately. You know, when you're in a role like I've been in the past few years where you have a lot of staff continuity, that's a lot easier because when you're first together as a group, it is important to meet. It is important to get on one page. It's important to get the verbiage down. It's important to do all those things as a coaching staff. You know, and Ime has a new group now, and that's probably the way that he'll go about it. But as you get to spend more time together, then you can do more things just communicating appropriately, whether it be by email, quick meetings, whatever the case may be. Now that I'm in a new role, right, with people that I've worked you know, around the corner from, but don't know as well, I do think that meeting appropriately without overdoing it is important. Coach, kind of moving back onto the court, wanted to have a conversation with you about adjustments and wanted to pick your brain about your process with that. So to start, as far as being a team that would be considered good at making adjustments, what kind of foundations did you think about having in place so that you can make adjustments later on down the road? One of the best parts about learning how to coach at Butler was we had a system that we believed strongly in, that we knew how to build up from the ground up. And that system would allow for the tweaks that by the end of the year, you had a lot of answers. Here, you don't have as much time to build up your system because you've got three weeks of training camp and you're into 82 games. You don't have as much practice time. And that's why it's so critical to have a foundation 
right? And so we try to maximize our time that we get as much as possible, have a foundation of how we're going to play, but then have a lot of answers. I think that the bottom line is it's just like anything else. When you see something beating you, when you see that it's going to be an issue, whether that is big picture, that it's going to be an issue for your team over 82 games, or even in that moment, it's an issue for you in the third quarter of one individual game. You've got to be able to tweak, adjust, and react swiftly to that. I have been so impressed throughout my entire time in the NBA with the player's ability to do that. They don't get the same practice time. They don't get the same habit-building time. In college, you do get that. But I do think that you know what they can do is they can react and adjust on the fly, and that you have to be able to. You know, I've always thought that you can't guard the best players in this game one way for an entire game, let alone an entire series. They'll figure you out and they'll pick you apart. And I think that that's just the way it is. And that's a fun part of the game. You know, I think people have asked me what I'll miss about coaching. I'll miss that. That's what I'll miss because I do enjoy whether it is looking at something you've thought about all summer as the perfect offense for your team and realizing one weekend, it's not that good. (laughs) And then saying, okay, we got to go back and figure this out in a day or, you know, figuring out which guy Marcus Smart's going to guard in the fourth quarter on the last possession so he can blow up their whole play. Right. You know, I think that those are things that it's nice, you know, without Marcus Smart, it's not as fun, but those are the things that are fun to think about. Coach, with such little practice time, what are the habits you felt were important to work on when you did get court time with your guys? For context's sake, I was with one of my assistants this weekend at Butler, who's now the head coach at Penn State, and Micah Shrewsbury, who was also with me here. And he found our old practice plans from the 2010 season. And our practice, we're on the 103rd practice as we headed into the Final Four. And When we played Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals a few years ago in late May, I think we were at like 42. So, you know, the huge difference in learning versus in games, learning on the fly versus having true time to build habits and rep it from the college to pro game. I would say the biggest thing for me is you can't have a bad practice. You can't have a day where you don't accomplish something that's significant and you can't have wasted moments in the practice, right? So there's a 12-minute drill needs to have application for that game and probably for 10 games from now for the playoffs. And I just think that that's the way that you build it out. You know, our, our staffs do a great job of getting the people that need extra reps because they're not playing as much the right on-court time. And staffs are so big now that you can give them the ability to work reads, whether offensively, defensively, whatever the case may be, in a non-practice setting and more of an individual work or small group setting. And so we did try to take advantage of that, try to take advantage of film appropriately. You take advantage of walkthroughs appropriately. You take advantage of all those things and all those meetings. And you just have to be better at that at this level than you did in college. Can you elaborate? I'm just really curious when you said, when you do a team drill and you said that, you know, it has to have practicality for not only now, but for down the line or in the playoffs, how would you go about structuring that drill? And what are you taking into account? So it has applications for the future. I guess the thing that I would say is, is in college sometimes, and we didn't practice very long at Butler. I mean, I didn't go more than an hour and a half, hardly ever. And usually it was less than that once we got later in the season. And, you know, our whole thing was 
We're going to build the right habits throughout the course of the year. We're going to be smart enough to tweak on the fly and react accordingly, but we're going to have clear mind and fresh legs and be great. But in college, even with that, when you practice that often, sometimes you throw a new drill in occasionally just to keep it fresh, right? So it's not mundane so that it doesn't same old, same old. Here, it's more about let's just get good at something, Mm -hmm. right? You only have so much time to practice. So you know, for us, it was a combination of, you know, making sure that we were as crisp offensively as we could be and got as much appropriate work on our base system defense with the small tweaks that we thought going into the game that we would need to beat the next opponent. But like, for instance, when we would do a walkthrough, I don't think this is unique. I don't think like this is anything special, but when we would do a walkthrough here, we would go through the action that we would want to guard, but we would then reverse side of the floor and go into another action, reverse side of the floor and again, go into a third action. We just call that like a multitasking walkthrough. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're going over the action that the Sixers are running, but then when on the reversal, you're going through just stuff, you're building habits for your team. And maybe on the reversal back, you're going through, you know, a way to guard the angle, pick and roll against Toronto. And you don't even say that, right? You just make sure that you are introducing those opportunities so that as the season progresses or as that presents itself in a game, you're ready to talk about, hey, remember when we did this and walked through? This is what we're going to do right now. Yeah. Remember when we did this a week ago? This is what we're going to do right now. And so you just have that, I guess, encyclopedia built up. Coach, if I could just go back to something you said a second ago that was interesting about you can't have bad practices and wanted to know your thoughts on if and when a practice was going south, what you would do to adjust in that situation. So you have a great practice plan and then somebody rolls an ankle or whatever the case may be, what you would do in those moments to make sure that the practice was still something came out of it. So I learned this from Coach Licklider, which I love. Who He's like the most unique thinker that I had ever been around in coaching. I'll tell you two stories from him. Number one is we were having a bad practice at Butler. It was 6 a.m. We did some morning practices there and we were about 20 minutes in and he said, circle up. Circle up just meant practice is over. You know, he just said, all right, today wasn't good. We'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. And I was like, what? Because every coach that I had ever played for, we would have gotten on the line or like, you know, we grew up in the Knight Katie era in Indiana. I was at the game where Knight threw the chair when I was eight years old. Like you don't just walk away. Right. But yeah, you know, he said right after he said, yeah, human beings have days like this, you know? And I think that that is his point that day was we're not going to get anything accomplished. So we're not going to have a bad practice and set ourselves back. Now you can't have very many of those days a year in college. You can get away with them more in the pros. But the more bad practices or average practices or guys just get through it, they add up, the worse your team's going to be, right? And it doesn't mean they have to be rah-rah the whole time. It doesn't mean that every drill has to be like super intense and ends in a fight or competitive or whatever the case may be. It just means everybody needs to be dialed in to improve it. If you walk out of that gym that day and you've worked on drills, if you've worked on reads, if you've worked on things that made each guy a little bit better, then that's a solid, good practice day. And that should probably be the goal. The other Coach Lick story I'll tell you about practice, and he's now the head coach at Evansville. and Just again, a tremendous mentor and friend. He split up the teams one day in the early 2000s, and he allowed them to go at each other. And they went at each other. They were competitive. They were tough. They were talking. It was physical. And the 10-minute scrimmage or eight-minute scrimmage, whatever it was, ended tight. And he said, circle up. And everybody looked at him like, oh, hell no. 
no, we're no. And I was, I was like coaching one of the teams and I was like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Yeah. And the players are frustrated. And he said, circle. Uh, and they all got in the circle. They kept bickering. They kept complaining. And I walked up to him like, you know, it was tied, right? He goes, wait till you see him tomorrow. Kept the teams the same. And the next day's practice was as good as that day. <laughs> and so then it's like, you know, the way that he was thinking was so far ahead of me at that time. But it was a great lesson in coaching about he's trying to maximize a season and not feel good when he goes home tonight. And so, you know, I think that those two stories summed up kind of the unique ways that he thinks about it. Love both of those stories. So from your point of view on the theme of practice still and whether it was good or bad, sometimes for you, would it be more important to have a practice that maybe you didn't get as much done, say, going over pick and roll coverages or new twists or variations, but the energy was there and the spirit was there versus, hey, we need to get stuff in because you know we got a game here tomorrow. Uh, the balance of that. Yeah. I think that whenever you have an extra day, right? Maybe you really focus on that, or maybe you're in training camp. For colleges, you've got a couple of days before the game, whatever the case may be. Sometimes there is just that, like whether it is just something to build the camaraderie, whether it's just something to get the energy level in the room, we all have drills, right? Five to 10 drills that require communication, that require extra effort, that require like going the extra mile that I think bring those out, right? Yeah. And I think that that's something that you always have a pulse on. And sometimes you're going through an early part of practice and you didn't have that planned. And obviously you throw those in so that to up the energy level in the room. Oftentimes that's just so you feel a little bit better, right? <laughs> right. But I think that that does help. Coach, I'd like to go back kind of the beginning of this conversation. You mentioned you'll think about the season, you'll think about some plays or some systems, and then they don't work. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on just how you evaluated what is and isn't working and when to change it. I think that most of the time you do have the general concepts, especially because you've been thinking about the system install all summer. And for us, I think it's the earlier that you can work on that, think about it, the better so that you can have you know clear direction, even in an individual workout, maybe what you're looking for out of a cut, whatever the case may be. But I do think that inevitably every year, you know, you may have plays, you may have things that you've thought of, especially on the offensive end, that just don't look as good as you thought they would with that particular team. And it is important to scrap it, right? Mm -hmm. And to then move forward. Maybe your guys don't like it. Maybe they don't feel good about them running it. Maybe they would like a small tweak or would like the angle of the screen to be set in a different way. You know, whatever the case may be, I think you have to be open to that thoughtful about that. And defensively, you know, I think every year that we've gone in with a system and our systems were polar opposites from the Butler system defensively to playing here most of the years that I was here. But every year in the first week, we'd see something that we really liked that we would just kind of continue to work on as the year went on. And so there's always something and I think that flexibility is important. I think you need to be as you know organized and prepared and ready as possible, but you also need to be you know malleable. Coach, just on that same theme of deciding what to keep and what to scrap, now going in-game and say a, a halftime, a typical halftime, and what you and the staff would look at in that scenario to say, hey, what we're doing is working versus maybe we made a tweak here in the second half. You know, what conversations did you have about those things? Well, sometimes it depended on the time of the year. 
you know, I think a lot of times early in the year, it's really important to establish yourself, to establish an identity, build habits, not just look for the easy way out all the time, work hard on the things that you think your team can be great at, right? Because there's only so many things that your team can truly be great at. Mm -hmm. And what we don't want to do is change too quickly and give us an out when we can be a great ball pressure team. We can be a great, you know, up to touch and pick and roll team. We can be a great switching team, whatever the case may be, whatever your system is, the thing that you're best at. And so I think it just kind of depends. You know, I do think that a lot of times it is about doing all of the details and the techniques just a little bit better. And then sometimes it's about changing personnel or changing scheme, right? A lot of times, just a simple change in a matchup can help you do that better. A little bit more pressure on the basketball to be disruptive early pushes everything out by a couple of feet. That changes everything, right? And I just think you're always alert to those things. Hopefully, you know your team well enough to know who can help move the needle for you. And then hopefully, you know your team well enough to know we don't have an answer for that if we stay with what we're doing and we need to change especially as you get into the playoffs. And I mean, that the thing is right when you get scored on once, your antenna goes up twice in a row. It's like, you know, red alert. Because if you let it keep happening, it will keep happening. Sure. You know, people expose that at this level. Players are so good and the coaches are really, really smart. They figure out what works and they stick with it. And those teams at the end of the playoffs have a lot of answers. Coach, we want to move now into a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. We'll give you three different basketball topics and ask you to start one, to sub one, and to sit one. And then we can have a fun little discussion around your answers. So, Coach, we were talking a little bit beforehand. We're all fans of the show, uh, Ted Lasso. So we came up with three Ted Lasso quotes here for you. And so we'd like to have you start one, sub one, and and sit one as far as maybe your first, second, third favorites. And we can uh, maybe discuss why from there. So quote number one from Ted Lasso is, be curious, not judgmental. Quote number two is, you know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? It's got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish. And quote number three is, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Am I doing it by my reaction to those quotes or what I think <laughs> is applicable to basketball? Most it's probably applicable. applicable. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to, I, I've watched every episode. I love it. I think it's awesome. And I love the mental health focus in this second season. It's so on point with so many things in that show, but these quotes are just three of them, right? I would say... The be curious, not judgmental. I mean, they're all three really good. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say that one. The horse, I would say, is probably third, but I think it's like <laughs> really good too. I'd say be curious, not judgmental. And then what was the second one? Be a goldfish, 10 second memory. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The goldfish one I love, especially when you're in sports. I've got a 15 year old and a 12 year old. And, you know, and that kind of goes back to you're always worried about what somebody says about you or what the instant feedback we're getting in the social media era, or you miss a shot and you're not confident and you don't let the next one fly. Like, I love that. Like, let it go. 
have shot amnesia, let that thing go. That's what I would start. Be curious, not judgmental. I think that the curious part's great, but the not judgmental part is like super duper important. And then, you know, I like the horse one because I do think that it's, you know, you have to become comfortable being uncomfortable, but I'd probably play them some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Them all the time. <laughs> For yeah. sure. We don't sit anybody all the time. Everybody in the NBA gets their opportunity at some point. For sure. Is this in the realm of possibilities where a coach that maybe tactically doesn't know much about the sport, but is just awesome in mental health, communication, culture building. And then, like we said, the staff size are so big. Do you think in any world that it could be feasible to have maybe just someone who has a rough estimate of the game, but is awesome in all these other things and then just supported with a great staff of experts? I think it's so interesting. I've thought about that a lot, right? Could you take somebody that is just world-class at all of those things and put them in a position where they're surrounded by experts at all of the areas of the game and do that well? I don't know the answer to that, (laughs) but I do think, I don't think it's no for sure. You know, I've been really lucky, obviously, right? So I've seen the best coaches in the game coach. I've watched practices. I've gone to meet with them, spend time with them. But I've been in Bill Belichick's practices before, right? And I've seen how all of his coaches coach their areas and with a lot of like responsibility and autonomy. And it does make you wonder, could a person like Belichick who just has everything mapped out all across the program, who is able to focus on all the things that matter and nothing else. Could that translate to any sport? I would guess so, but I don't know the answer to that. Coach, if I could just circle back to thing you said, but just about how the second season of Ted Lasso is really focused a lot on mental health Mm -hmm. and things like that. And just from your point of view, you know, dealing with the professionals and the pressure and all of that, just how you would try to assist or help in those areas so that you know players felt like they were making progress there as well. Well, we have our you know kind of processes in place and you know the people that we work with that really focus on the wellness and, and mental health areas. We're very in tune and alert to the fact that you know the onset of depression and anxiety often happens between 18 and 24. And with the amount of scrutiny and the amount of praise and the amount of feedback that doesn't matter that we all get in this kind of world and the players get 10 times more than anybody else, you just want to hopefully provide an environment, provide a place where people understand, like have the perspective on what's important and what's not, and hopefully aren't affected by, again, the negativity or the overpraising. But the reality is, regardless, is you're still going to have the ups and downs and go through the ups and downs, whether you're a 44-year-old coach or whether you're a 19-year-old player, and you have to be able to navigate those. And it's not easy. You know, everybody has their own experiences and everybody's their own person. And we want to very much normalize the idea that working on yourself working on your own mental state, your own mindset is just as important as getting in the weight room and working on your strength, right? And I think that that is something that is really important. Again, I I didn't love the meetings that I was a part of in the corporate world, but I did love the fact that I worked on two drugs, Prozac, which was an antidepressant and 
Zyprexa, which was bipolar medication that really taught me a lot about mental health in the late nineties or early two thousands when, you know, it was still tough at out time, Yeah, you know, and I just think it was coaches or people in the front office or training staffs or whatever. Our first thought should not be, well, that person's not tough enough or that person's not, you know, isn't here today. It's like, why? Like, can we help? Is there something we can do to help? How do we, you know, kind of be proactive about that? And coach, sorry, just because I think this is an important subject too. How about for coaches as well and people on your staff sort of self-care throughout the course of a season, whether it was back in the college level or the professional level? Well, first of all, you know, we've been through, you know, the last couple of years, I think have challenged everybody, right? Yeah. Whether just because the, the pain in, in the world, the pain in, in all of our communities. And then, you know, I think that on top of that, trying to do a job that is really difficult and try to do it really well. And so I think it's important for coaches to not only take time to focus on themselves and make sure that they are, you know, appropriately in tune to that, but also like we all grew up in this culture of you get into the office at 6 a.m., you leave at 2 a.m., you know, you're watching film till your eyes are dry. And I just think that there is a diminishing point of returns in the season. And we land at 3 a.m. half the time. Right. Or we, you know, very rarely are getting regular good sleep. Very rarely do you have a homestand. So it's already taking a toll on your mind and body. And my suggestion to anybody is do something else. Find areas of the day to do something else. Obviously, you want to work out, but take time to focus your mind elsewhere. Like, you know, take 30 minutes or take an hour and go for a walk and listen to a podcast that has nothing to do, no offense with basketball, right? <laughs> None taken. And I just think that those things are helpful. I tell the story all the time. We lost a game. I think we were on a couple game losing streak and we headed out to play the Warriors and the Warriors were the Warriors. Then it was like, you know, they were on their run. Yeah. And so we land in Golden State and typically I would watch a couple of more games and work on my own game sheet get prepared and probably not talk to anybody that night and probably, you know, go to sleep whenever I went to sleep, order in food, you know, all those things. And, you know, I just called Jamie Young, who was an assistant coach and Micah Shrewsbury, who again, the head coach at Penn State. And I said, let's get out of here. And so we rented bikes and we rode across the Golden Gate Bridge. And then we won the next night. You know, like me watching Steph Curry run off the screen and shoot a crazy shot and losing any more sleep over that was not going to do us any good. I knew that he was going to go for 30 points, 20 of which would be on sports center and would be like miraculous points, but I knew we were going to make it hard. We had played them a bunch. I watched them every night, just like everyone else did. So I didn't need to watch them. And I think that was just a great reminder that, Hey, sometimes it's more about clearing your own mind. You know, we want our players to play with a clear mind. You should have a clear mind as a coach too. And I was not always good at that. I hope that I'm going to stay out of Ime's way and let him do his thing because I think that's really important. But I hope if I have anything that I can add to his experience, I help him get away from it. All right, coach. Well, we'll get back to the court. And so the next start sub sit for you we have is defending the Spanish pick and roll or the, the stack screen in the pick and roll. So start subbers. I can only talk about these things because I'm not I have no idea how we're going to do it. So it is fun because now <laughs> I 
can say whatever I want, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. You're not giving away any secrets. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, coach. So start sub sit, switching with the guard to guard or the ball handler stack screener. Right. Switching every screen or trap the initial screen and try to just blow it up right away. We've always trapped it because again, you have a system and a way of doing it and we could not guard it for two weeks and then play somebody that runs it over and over and guard it over and over. So we had always trapped it. I think that in an ideal world, you just switch the first screen, right? Mm -hmm. You just have all kinds of versatile people that can do it. I think if you have a typical team, especially if you're a college team and you don't have that kind of versatility and that kind of length athleticism across the board, then I would probably trap it. But the number one way to do it is the three-way, which was your middle option. So, you know, that takes a lot of recognition. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of communication. And guys in this league do a pretty good job of that. I would start three-waying. I would try to blow it up and trap it. And then because I don't think you would always want to switch guard to guard just because of the way it is for the first screen, then let's just sit that for now. And let's get good at those other things because that's the easiest answer is just the simple switch. Whatever's more difficult, throw in early and then you can go to easy later. The three-way is great though. People need to work on that type of stuff because those are things that we would do all the time in training camp, not necessarily with that action, but you know, being able to communicate a person in help takes the roller and then sends the person that was in the action back to a perimeter player. I think that those are, that's what we call the three-way. Coach, just a quick technical follow-up on that three-way switch. Would you prefer the defender guarding the ball to send it one direction so you kind of knew where the switches would come from? Did it matter? Do you want them straight up or did you want to send it a certain way? I didn't care which direction as much as that it was all communicated. Perfectly. So inevitably, because of that, because you want to simplify your communication, you're sending it a direction most of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So, you know, whether you're sending left in the middle or you're icing on the sides or sending to the screen on the sides, whatever the case may be, you know, the bottom line is, is everyone had to be on the same page. You know, again, I don't think there's an exact way that is the best way. I think the best way is when all of your team is totally sold out, committed to it and on one page. And so everything takes off from there. Figure out your personnel, do what they all do best, communicate great, cover the biggest threats, and play with multiple efforts. And good things are going to happen, whether you send the ball to the screen, you down it, whatever the case may be. My follow-up is when you blow up the screen, then obviously I think most of the offenses will just like immediately pop that stack screener. And if it's a shooter, what are you telling that defender? And as far as how you want to then guard, I'm assuming the short roll and his man popping out off of that Spanish action. Opposite corner is the most important person in the play. Okay. So that person protects everything. And so as that guy pops out, as that guy slips out, whatever the case may be, you're blowing up the ball. He's there to protect the roll. And then you play off of that. Okay. And if the trap's good enough, again, this goes back to Belichick, right? So if the trap's good enough, you disrupt the whole play. Let's not figure out how to guard the 10 different reads out of the play. Let's blow that thing up from the get-go. And what is a good trap to you? Or what then are the parameters of a good trap? You know, obviously don't get split. Don't let the corner get turned. The more that you can play with high hands to make a hang time pass or deflect the ball, the better. And then if you have two guys in the, you know, if you have a guy that again was setting the Spanish screen or 
the Spain screen and then popping out, or if he slips out early, whatever the case may be, if those two guys on the weak side can read, right, how the duress that the ball handler is under, Mm -hmm. that gives you even more of an understanding of how much you can gamble, how much you can help, and how much you maybe don't need to help, right? And I think that that's you know, largely dependent on who you're guarding and what kind of attack and aggression you can trap the ball with. Coach, we're going to call this our back to school question. If you were to say, get a high school or maybe a small college or just a different level job, if you're going back and you were going to put in more of a base offensive system that's non-pick and roll based at those lower levels, would you start, sub, or sit, flex, dribble drive, or five out motion offense? Well, I've actually coached one other team in these 14 years for one day. And at the time, fifth grade girl decided that she wanted to try basketball and she's more of a soccer player. Okay. And so I watched one game and they were all playing for the first time and all standing in the paints. So I showed them clips of the five out, you know, spacing. And it was super fun for me. It was probably a little over the top, <laughs> but anyway, um, but it did, you know, it did get us closer to getting you know, popsicles at the end of practice. So we were good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say in this day and age, because of the way that people have learned to play, I would go dribble drive, then traditional motion, then flex. Okay. So sit flex. Traditional motion is if you can get a group that can play that way and that can learn to play the game, that can learn screening and cutting and slipping and all those things, that's really, really helpful. There are some good off the ball cutters and actions and people in this league. A lot of times the guys that are the best at it are not only playing for really good coaches in this league, but they also played for motion coaches in college. You go back and you look at like, I always say about like Curry and Thompson, they're obviously in a great setting. They played for McKillop who was running screens all over the place. and Curry was running off things. and They were playing as much cutting as anybody and then obviously Tony did a lot of the stuff with two big screening and lots of guys cutting in Washington State when Clay was there. If you can teach guys how to do that, if you can teach kids how to do that, I think that's really, really good. I think that people are generally right now, they've grown up with every ball handling and individual drill in the world. And so the easiest would be the dribble drive and just harp on the spacing aspect of it. Harp on create a closeout. When you get somebody running at you, make a play for the next person, you know, re-space, relocate, do all of those things that make those teams really good. But that's probably where I'd start with a young group, not knowing who I have on my team. Sure. Just knowing generally the generation we're in. When I was growing up in the 90s, I mentioned Knight, Katie. I mean, I don't think we ran a ball screen in high school. It was all motion. We grew up in the motion era with the two best motion coaches in the country an hour away each way. And so I just think that, you know, it's funny how times have changed, but I probably would say that that would be the most fun for me, but I don't think it would be the most applicable now. Within the motion, teaching like the screening action and who has the first right to make a read and avoid where the motion is just the ball being reversed and we screen away, we reverse, screen away, reverse, screen away. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what makes it special, you know, and whether you designate screeners, you're obviously looking for the appropriate people to get open and screen. But, you know, as you know, some of the best actions are when the best shooters are the screeners right? Whether they can slip out, slip off a flare, then come off a down, or they set a rip screen for somebody. And what are you going to do? Are you going to switch it? Are you going to allow it? Or are you just going to allow a lot? 
right? Yeah. You know, some of our best actions in college, because we had so many guys that could really shoot the ball were just simple slice cuts and rip screens at the elbow for some of those shooters. You see Miami running a lot of that, but I think that that's why it takes time. You know, that's why, you know, I I always remember watching those IU teams when I was a kid and the teams that got it when they got late in the season, couldn't scout them. They were unpredictable. They just played with constant movement and motion. And again, it's not the way people are growing up playing. So it's way more difficult probably now than then to build it. You know, I, I just think back again, when we were in school, you know, our seventh grade team played that way. Our eighth grade team played that way. We played that way all the way through high school. So then if you go to college, it's probably easier to play that way. Yeah. But certainly that's not the way that most people are playing now. Yeah. I don't know that in a lot of cases it's better because the amount of spacing that you have with the dribble drive and the amount of space you have to cover behind the three point lines. I think that that's almost impossible to guard when you're playing against good players. Yeah. Absolutely. Coach, you're off the start sub sit hot seat. Uh, that was a lot of fun. It's good. I had to write down, I had to write down my options after the first one. I didn't realize it was so complex. It's, well, the Ted Lasso one was a little more complex. Yeah. That's right. But I would have liked to have seen video of you teaching motion to your daughter's fifth grade team. It wasn't motion. No, I, I showed, I actually, I think I showed clips of Milwaukee when they were doing all the five out stuff. Oh, okay. And so look how spread out they are. <laughs> look how much room they have. Like if the more room so that it was only two clips. It didn't last very <laughs> okay. long. Was, I think most of the team didn't show up. The rest of the team was like looking up in the rafters. Like there was, <laughs> or I guess not the rafters at the ceiling. <laughs> I think it was, again, it was just for my own. <laughs> yeah. <it's a> good. <laughs> well, coach. So thank you for that. Uh, we've got one more question for you, but before we do, thank you very much for your time uh, this morning. This has been a lot of fun and we really appreciate your thoughts. Appreciate it guys. Thanks for having me. All right, coach, you've been at a number of different stops throughout your career, and now you're you know, entering into a new position. Uh, interested to hear what the best investment has been in your career. Best investment in my career. When I think of investment, I usually think of like financial, the financial side. Let me reframe it. The best decision, luck thing that's ever happened to me by far was Marion Tracy. She's my agent, the best to be around and is like my most trusted resource. She's like my lead psychologist, assistant coach, salary cap expert. She's everything. So I would say that that by far was the best decision or luck that happened to me. I don't think that I should say that getting married isn't an investment. I don't think that that's probably the appropriate term. (laughs) So as my grandpa told me, never marry for money. You can borrow it cheaper. (laughs) So I would say that she's by far the luckiest thing that's happened. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with coach Brad Stevens. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership, free newsletter, videos, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.